This is episode number 759 with Kirill Aramenko, the founder and CEO of Super Data Science. Today's episode is brought to you by ReadyTensor, where innovation meets reproducibility, by Oracle NetSuite Business Software, and by Intel and HPE Esmeral Software. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast, the most listened to podcast in the data science industry. Each week, we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. I'm your host, John Crone. Thanks for joining me today. And now, let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. Today, we've got another special episode with an extremely important individual to this show, Mr. Kirill Aramenko. If you don't already know him, Kirill is founder and CEO of Super Data Science, an e-learning platform that is the namesake of this very podcast. He founded the Super Data Science Podcast in 2016, and he hosted the show until he passed me the reins a little over three years ago. He has reached more than 2.7 million students through the courses he's published on Udemy, making him Udemy's most popular data science instructor. We've made today's episode for you because, well, you demanded it. Uh, Kirill was most recently on the show for episode number 747, in which he provided a technical introduction to the Transformer module that underpins all the major modern large language models like the GPT, Gemini, Llama, and BERT architectures. We received an unprecedented amount of positive feedback from that episode, demanding more, so here we are. That episode number 747, as well as today's, are perhaps the two most technical episodes of this podcast ever, so they probably appeal mostly to hands-on practitioners like data scientists and machine learning engineers, particularly those who already have some understanding of deep neural networks. In this episode, Kiro reviews the key transformer theory that we covered back in episode number 747, namely the individual neural network components of the decoder-only architecture that prevails in generative large language models like the GPT series models. Kirill then builds on that to detail the full encoder-decoder transformer architecture that is used in the original transformer by Google in a paper called Attention is All You Need. And it's also used in other models that excel at both natural language understanding and generation, such as T5 and BART. Um, and then he goes on to discuss the performance and capability pros and cons of full encoder-decoder architectures relative to decoder-only architectures like GPT and encoder-only architectures like BERT, not to be confused <laughs> with the encoder-decoder BERT. And then at the end, we talk about how you can learn everything on transformers and LLMs from today's episode with accompanying video instructions, so not just this audio-only format, by heading to Kirill's LLM course, which is at superdatascience.com slash LLM course. All right, you ready for this insane episode? Let's go. Kirill Aramenko, welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. I know where you are because you're in the same office that you're usually recording in. Well, although sometimes you record from home. Yes, that's true. Uh, so I know that you're in Brisbane, but maybe you can tell us, so since telling us where you are isn't going to be that interesting or different, maybe tell us why you sometimes record from the office versus from home. Um, oh, well, first of all, thank you, John, for having me again <laughs> within the span of uh, 40 days. Um, I'm actually in Gold Coast, which is near Brisbane. It's about an hour away from Brisbane. And uh, sometimes office, sometimes home. Uh, good, good question. I guess it, uh, 
depends on uh, the day. Like aircon is off in the office on weekends, so I oh. really need the aircon. Um, oh, but otherwise, yeah. also home, home is generally a little bit tidier behind me in the background, so it. <laughs> easier that's, that's funny last time before we started recording i was like maybe just move like that thing and that thing like yeah <laughs> those are yeah. like out of control yeah. but i think it's authentic which is a big part of who you are Thanks. you are as authentic as they come and so it's nice to see whatever you have in there in your office behind you Thanks. um what about you you have a table that's a new table yeah, that's different. Yeah. <laughs> People watching the YouTube version get to see a table behind yeah. me. Wow. Yeah, I'm so sometimes Natalie, who is operations manager for the podcast, when we have lots going on, this is a table that's usually in my living room, but I bring it in so that there's like lots of space to be working collaborative collaboratively when there's lots of admin items to get through. So that's the plan. It's been uh we're recording on a Monday and like it was a weekend of intensive admin and Monday evening is going to be more of it. So yeah, it's in here. It's weird. It's funny that you didn't notice it. It's mm -hmm. like, it's white. Like maybe it's just like uh, people wouldn't even see it. Mm -hmm. Anyway, this isn't very good banter. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> this is low quality banter. Apologies to all our listeners. Um, so yeah, you've been on the episode. You, I mean, this is your show for people who don't know. Uh, the Super Data Science Podcast founded by Caroline Menko. Uh, the first 400 or so episodes were hosted by you. And you have been my guest since I became the host a couple of uh, over three years ago now yeah, yeah, yeah. That, since I've been hosting. And uh, most recently you were on the show for episode number 747. And in that you gave an introduction to large language models. And as we were recording that, we took sometimes some breaks and I said to you, this is getting out of hand, man. <laughs> like this is like, this is too technical. This is too long. You've gone too far. People are going to hate it. <laughs> I was really I was like, worried I people would like tune out and not, not enjoy the episode as much. Then it was the opposite, opposite scenario. It ended up being that people loved it. We got more individual feedback on the episode than I can recall getting on every ever on any other episode. We don't like have a rigorous quantitative evaluation of that. And so there could be a recency uh, bias of memory in that, but I'm pretty sure that we've never had so much positive feedback. And certainly what I tell can tell you quantitatively is that it was an absolute barn burner in terms of listens. So we internally, our key metric of performance on episodes is how the episode has performed after 30 days. Mm -hmm. So that gives us a snapshot that we can compare. As soon as 30 days have passed, you have this single metric that you can track across all episodes because of course sometimes obviously if episodes that were published many years ago they otherwise have an advantage over recently published episodes but if we use that 30-day mark and yeah it was one of the most popular episodes ever at that 30-day mark so i mean great seemed to be yeah great right on yeah and it was a different format as well very long very technical um and um, i'm glad people enjoyed it we also got a also noticed quite a lot of um I noticed quite a lot of interest. I saw those comments on, on the YouTube version and um, the eight eight likes on the SoundCloud version of the episode, which was very nice. Um, well, yeah, because often SoundCloud, you don't get much engagement. Yeah, that's there, true. Is the point you're that's making. That's true. Yeah. And uh, a lot of people came to the Super Day Science community afterwards because on the episode, we mentioned the Super Day Science uh, Large Language Models A to Z course, and people came to check out the course to sign up. And... 
um, I guess like slowly leading into today's episode, what we noticed, uh, what I noticed, what people were coming for was, yes, of course, you know, the large language models A to Z course uh, where we talked about the whole LLMs and transformer in detail. Um, but the interestingly, and we actually ran, a, ran, a, ran an event, a live event where I was like, okay, I'll answer any transformer questions, any technical questions you have. Because a lot of people watched the episode, took the, had taken the course by that time. And I said, come bring your technical questions. And so these people uh, came to this ep- uh, like uh, live um, event, which was like uh, online, of course, for, for an hour. And I was expecting all these super technical questions about attention mechanism or uh, input embedding and positional encoding, things like that. And most of the questions, I was so surprised. Most of the questions people were asking about... Um, business applications, how to use LLMs in their specific challenges at work. Like it was zero technical questions. People were like, all right, how do I use uh, LLMs? Uh, what's, what's, what are the concerns? How do I fine tune models? How to um, ap- apply it in my specific use case, uh, business uh, situation and so on. And, um, and then also I had at least one person very uh, thoroughly asking in the community about the full transformer architecture. Uh, how, uh, you know, because on the podcast, we only talked about the large language model part, which is the decoder-only architecture. And um, there was at least one person who was very curious about the full transfer architecture. And so that's what we're going to focus on today. We'll do our best to cover off as much as we can um, in the time that we have. Uh, We'll focus on the full transformer architecture uh, for the first part, which is going to be very technical. (laughs) Then we're going to focus on uh, fine-tuning and understand what fine-tuning is uh, and the different types of fine-tuning they are, the different uh, outcomes that you might be want to get from fine-tuning, uh, and uh, how to do fine-tuning, the different methods or techniques there are for fine-tuning. And then in the final part, again, if we have time, we'll talk about uh, different additional technical considerations, so things that I didn't have enough, uh, like I, I didn't mention in the previous podcast episode or in this one, that extra super technical stuff for people who really want to dive deep into it. So. First part is going to be technical. Middle part is going to be slightly less technical. Final part, if we have time, will be super technical. Um, That's the plan. Yeah. Research projects in machine learning and data science are becoming increasingly complex, and reproducibility is a major concern. Enter ReadyTensor, a groundbreaking platform developed specifically to meet the needs of AI researchers. With ReadyTensor, you gain more than just scalable computing, storage, model and data versioning, and automated experiment tracking. You also get advanced collaboration tools to share your research conveniently and securely with other researchers and the community. See why top AI researchers are joining ReadyTensor, a platform where research innovation meets reproducibility. Discover more at readytensor.ai. That's readytensor.ai. And we'll we'll see. I mean, even this full transformer architecture thing, there's a chance that it's going to end up being a huge <laughs> amount of time, in which case we'll figure something out. We'll have, uh, we will get all that content to you in some format or another. We'll try to get it all into this episode. And in case it isn't obvious, we are going to do a, a quick recap of the of what was covered in Kirill's preceding episode. So in episode number 747, that extremely in-depth introduction to Transformers, we're gonna be building on that right now. Uh, Well, you're gonna get the recap and then we're gonna build on it. But if you want the full recap 
go back to that episode number 747 from last month. For sure. That would, that would be, that would be very helpful. Um, but yeah, let's dive into it. So starting with the recap of what we discussed, uh, last time, um, we used a an analogy. So, if by the way, so, uh, people commented after the previous episode. People commented that it was very helpful if you're in front of a computer to open uh, the research paper titled "Attention is All You Need" uh, from 2017. You can find it on archive. Just type in "Attention is All You Need" research paper. It'll come up. It's one of the. It's a foundational paper for a large language models. It was published by a team at Google in 2017. It's got a hundred, John, I checked this out recently. It's got a, over a hundred thousand citations. That is extremely high. Even 10,000 is huge for a, a niche research paper. This, this one's got a hundred. 10,000 is insane. This one's got a hundred. 10,000 is insane. Right. Uh, that, that I didn't, I didn't know that. That's absolutely crazy. Yeah. And that's, yeah, Vazwani et al. Um, although interestingly, something I learned from yeah. you in the, in the episode in yeah. 747 was that all six authors contributed equally, which is also very unusual. Like sometimes yeah. you get. So eight, typically, eight authors. Eight authors. Yeah. Oh my goodness! Yeah. So typically, um, the first author does the most work. Yeah, yeah. Like they do the writing. It's kind of their idea. Every once in a while, you see on papers an asterisk yeah, yeah. next to the first two authors that says these two authors contributed equally to this work. But in this case, it's all eight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They all brought different specializations. That's really and cool. it's really interesting to read on like on the literally on the first page of the paper. It says how they contributed. This person did this. This person added or find find or like tuned all the models. This person added this kind of uh, speeding up methodology. This person uh, introduced this uh, this solution, and you know, like, and then in there was at least one video, one YouTube video I watched with one of the um, researchers and how he talks about the contributions of some of other people, and it was in interesting how they brought their different perspectives and skills into this. Um, into this paper. So yeah, what I was saying is, uh, get the if you're in front of a computer, uh, bring up the research paper and uh, just go to the diagram. If you're not in front of the computer, that's totally fine. We'll visualize it in our minds, uh, and then you can look at it later on when you get to a computer, and, and you'll be like, oh, that makes sense. That's what they were talking about, like how it exactly uh, looks in the research paper. Cool. So we use the analogy of a five-story building, uh, and that's the uh, the decoder. So the transformer has two parts. It's got the encoder, which is uh, on the left, and it's got a decoder, which is on the right, like for visualization purposes. Just imagine left right. and right. So we talked, yeah, go ahead. It doesn't actually, I mean, to like clarify there, there's not like literally a left and yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Like that doesn't, it's really just matter. on the it's just different functions, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, on the picture in that paper. And so, therefore, what a lot of people will use when they are representing it. Although, also, I think I might, because we often think, like, at least in the writing systems that we use in the West, they go from left to yeah. right. And so from that perspective, maybe it also makes a little bit of sense because if you think about an encoder and a decoder together, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's easier to kind of conceptualize. And that's probably how you're going to run through it, like the encoder working before the decoder. But so kind of information think, moving left to right. I think that stems from the sec-to-sec -sec models. Remember the RNN or LSTM-based models, and they were pictured as uh, like a sequence of boxes going like from left to right, like a train, as in the words that you're, as you said, we write from left to right. That's how the words uh, stem that's encoder was on the left. It was like a flat horizontal structure, and then feeding into uh, the and decoder on the right, or another flat horizontal structure. Whereas with the transformer, um, now the structures like are vertical. Hence our analogy of buildings. Uh, but yeah, they kept the positioning, I guess. So uh, we talked previously. We talked about the part on the right, which is a decoder, and we discussed that it has five levels. 
so we're going to recap that, and then we will see what happens when we add the part on the left, which is the encoder. So decoder, if we start from the bottom, the very bottom level, if you imagine a five-story building, um, and you're inputting words into this, like you're inputting your prompt into a large language model. You're asking it, what is the tallest mountain, question mark? You put that in. So it all goes into this first level of the building, and key thing is transformers process input, not sequentially, but in parallel. So all those words go in at the same time. And the first level, each of those words gets a... Uh, input embedding. So an input embedding is a vector. Effectively, um, we what we can't, you know, like a, a large language model is neural networks, and neural networks can't work with words. They need to work with numbers. So we're representing each word with a vector. And these are not just random vectors. They are vectors that have semantic meaning. Semantic meaning is dictionary meaning of the word. So words that have similar semantic meaning are going to be similar. Words that have different semantic meaning are going to be far away from each other. So for example, an orange is going to be closer to an apple and a banana than it's going to be to the word car or airplane or the or the verb uh, to run or the adjective beautiful. So all words will get some encoding. And all of these vectors, they're 512 dimensional because the more dimensions you have, the better you can describe a word. Um, so yeah, that's effectively level one, right? Anything to add? All good? Just quick recap. No, all good, man. Yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> you you got this down. Yeah. <laughs> okay, level two. So now we've converted our words into vectors, and there's many ways of doing this. There's a bag of words model. There's the n-gram model, and so on. So you know, like you can you can read read up about those. That's not the core of this uh, transformer or large language model. It's just like a a method that we have to do. Then um, uh, after that, level two is the next module, which is called the positional encoding module. Now, as mentioned before, uh, all of these words, like what is the tallest mountain question mark, uh, they go in at the same time. By the way, quick caveat, we, I, as in the previous podcast, we're talking about words, but actually it's, uh, I, they get broken down into um, what are tokens and uh, tokens, you know, are a bit smaller than words. Uh, we're not going to go into detail that, so we're going to use tokens and words interchangeably in this podcast. So tokens go into level one, they get these vectors, then they go up to level two. And in level two, oh, you want to say something, John? Well, I should just really quickly say that usually they're smaller than words because tokens could be, you uh, you could have word level tokens, you could have character level tokens. What's on Vogue today, and which we talked about a lot more in the preceding episode, is subword tokens, which will typically be like, uh, yeah, parts of a word. So if you have a very long word, it gets broken up into several of these subwords. If you have a short word, it might it might be the same. So yeah, so generally speaking, yeah, exactly, exactly. And I, I don't mean to like nitpick. No, 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 that's very useful. That, yeah, I, lo yeah, I love yeah. learning something new. I didn't know that tokens could be bigger than words. That, that, that's a yeah, I mean, because you can even, you could even theoretically, you could have like a sentence level token. You, can, you could talk about like breaking up a document into like, like it's kind of like a definitional thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, cool. Very cool. Yeah, Very yeah, cool. yeah. But yeah, subword tokens. Yeah, that's definitely the way tokens. things are done today. So again, uh, we have these words. They get broken down in tokens. We're going to forget about tokens. We're just going to use words for now. They go into this level one. They get the their uh, individual vectors, which represent their dictionary or semantic meaning. Then from there, they go to level two. On level two, they get a positional encoding. What is a positional encoding? Well, as discussed, all of these words go in at the same time. Previous models, such as the uh, RNN-based or recurrent neural network models, or even more specifically the LSTM uh, models, they would take in the input one word at a time, so they would inherently know the order in which the words came. Transformers are very efficient at training, at processing data, 
because they can take input in parallel. So imagine like a whole a whole page or a hundred pages go in at the same time to transform. That's why when you ask ChatGPT a question, like you put in maybe um, a whole page of text, it instantly gives you the answer because it doesn't need to process every word by itself. It processes everything at the same time. But the drawback is that now it doesn't know in which order the words came. So we have to have this level two module where we add a positional encoding mechanism. So for example, we looked at the example uh, in the previous uh, podcast where we said, the wait, what are they called? Horses eat apples. Uh, and then if you reorder the words and you get apples eat horses is grammatically correct, but it's completely different meaning. Yeah. Do you remember yeah. that while you while you were talking about that? Yeah. I we haven't. I should maybe I could share. Yeah, them, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, for accessing in the show notes, but I wanted to see if because it's so unusual to think about apples eating horses. Yeah. It sounds like it is. It's grammatically nonsense. Yeah. Uh, but I wondered whether if I went into Dolly three yeah. in the ChatGPT interface and asked it to create apples eating horses, I thought that maybe it would be such grammatical nonsense, so far out of sample yeah. of the training data that it wouldn't be able to do it, but it did it perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and then I sent in real time as we were recording the episode, I slacked yeah. uh, images made by Dolly3 of apples eating horses. <laughs> so it, it is really amazing to me how the most modern, LLMs that we have at the time of recording are able to, in many cases, and there are constraints where you try to go too far out of sample and it just, it won't be able to figure that out and create the sentence for you or create the image for you. But they're starting to get with these billions of parameters, they're starting to get unbelievably flexible. Yeah. yeah. Um, such, such that even this grammatical nonsense, no problem. For sure. That was really cool. I tried uh, creating uh, an image, I think yesterday, of um what was it uh create ah oh it was something to do oh how do in the quantization a uh, normal distribution gets converted into a certain to quantized um uh yeah what's it called quantized number type for, this is for quantization for neural networks. Came up with the craziest picture ever. <laughs> like it was, it was similar to your apples eating horses image. So yeah, but at least you gave it a shot. Yeah, it's uh, anyway. I, I derail you. You're, you're talking about horses eating apples as being like grammatically sensible, and apples eating horses as being like <laughs> nonsense. Not yeah. And so nonsense. Basically, if you move the words around in a sentence, the change, the meaning changes. So we have to preserve positional. Uh, we have to know what position the words came in and we have to communicate that to the transformer. And that's what module two does. There's lots of ways of doing that. Uh, there's a very elegant solution that's used in the transformer. Uh, it's, uh, or in, in this decoder part that we're talking about. Um, it's, uh, it uses cosine and sine functions. We're not gonna go into detail on that. Uh, it's another technical topic, but it's outside of the um, core value of what transformers bring to the table, which is attention, and that's the next level. So after these vectors, uh, after the yeah, after the words get the vectors and the vectors get positional encoding added to them, they go into part three, which is the self-attention mechanism. And the self-attention mechanism, basically from each one of those vectors, uh, creates a creates three vectors, the Q vector, the K vector, and the V vector. Uh, the query vector, the key vector, and the value vector. So uh, the query, query vector is, um, the vector that looks for something. Let's rewind a little bit. Let's say 
uh, why do we need this attention mechanism? Let's start there. So attention mechanism uh, allows us to add context to the words that we're using, to, to encapsulate context. Uh, example that we used uh, previously was uh, the dog did not cross the street because it was too tired. So the word it refers to the words uh, to the to the dog because the dog was too tired. Uh, now, if we change the last word in the sentence, the dog didn't cross the street because it was too wide. The word it refers to the street because the street was too wide. So we can see that context of a sentence can change the meaning of individual words. And what that tells us is that words don't only have dictionary meaning, which is a semantic meaning. They also have contextual meaning. And the huge advancement of transformers uh, compared to other previous uh, models is that they are able to capture this context. Well, to be fair, there was a paper before the Transformers where attention was introduced uh, by Dmitry Bazdanu uh, with uh, Yosho Benjo as his supervisor. And Yosho Benjo actually came up with the term attention. We were speaking about Yosho, really want to get him on the show, invite him onto the show. And uh, like we've mentioned him a couple of times, we're great to get him onto the show. Yeah, so, I think I think we're getting we're getting closer and closer. I think it might happen. That'd be awesome. Soon. So anyway, so the attention concept was introduced previously, but uh, transformers really take advantage of it uh, in a beautiful way. And so, um, but what attention uh, does is it allows to capture that contextual meaning of words. And if you don't capture contextual meaning, if you just capture dictionary meaning. Then we're back to like 2015 model, 2016 models, right? All that RNN, LSTM models, they're pretty good, but they can't put together a long enough sentence because they lose that contextual uh, thread. And so this attention mechanism is designed to capture context. As we saw, it's important. Uh, how do they do it? Uh, every word gets three, instead of one vector, which we had uh, already, it gets three vectors. From that one vector, we create three vectors. We get Q vector, K vector, and a V vector. And let's say, uh, let's say we're looking at the sentence, apples are a type of delicious blank. So uh, for every word, we're going to create a contextual vector. How do we do that? Well, for example, for the word delicious, we go and uh, take the, the Q vector of the word delicious, which will contain what the word delicious is looking for. Uh, then it will go and interact with every K vector of every other word, including itself. So it will say, okay, my, this is my Q vector of the word delicious. What's the K vector of the word apples? What's the K vector of the word R? What's the K vector of the word A, a delicious, a fruit, and so on? So it will uh, interact with each one. Interact is in like we will compare the Q vector to the K vector. That comparison is done through a dot product uh, operation. And if two vectors are aligned, their dot, dot product is high. If two ve vectors are perpendicular, it's zero. If they're not aligned, it's very low. Um, so we do that process, and through that process, we know which vectors QK pairs are aligned, which QK pairs are not aligned, and the ones that are aligned, that's where we go to that word and we take the V value from that word. So the Q vector is what I'm looking for is the word delicious. The K vector is what every other word, including myself, has to offer, and the V value is what it actually offers, what context it offers to other words. So... Uh, as the word delicious, I'm going to pick the words where my K vector is aligned. My, their K vector is aligned with my Q vector. And from those words, I will extract the V value. And mathematically, it's a simple weighted sum. And the weights are basically the softmax of the dot products of uh, the QK pair, uh, or the QK pairs. We won't go into too much detail on that. That's very like thoroughly uh, explained. We went uh, thoroughly through it in the, the previous episode, 747. 
Um, but I guess the, the main takeaway is that uh, these QKV vectors are created. Um, obviously, they're randomly initialized because the weights of the initial uh, neural network are random. But then over time, the transformer learns how to update the weights in such a way that it can take advantage of the mechanism. I think for me, the biggest breakthrough in understanding attention was that we're not telling it what to do. We're not telling it, oh, use the Q vector like this. You have to put this value, this information in the K vector. You have to put this information in the V vector. We're just creating this mechanism for it to be able to take advantage of it and then create, like populate the vectors in such a way that then it will, like over epochs and epochs of training, that it will like be able to attend to different words. So our job is to mathematically implement the mechanism. The transformer through training will learn to use it. And that's a key di distinction. That's why you know we love neural networks. That was very nicely said. Thank you. Okay, so once we're done with that tension, what we get on the output of this level three is that we have these context-enriched vectors. Now, every word, uh, previously it had just a semantic-enriched vector, which had then which we added positional coding to. Now from that, using that QKV mechanism, we will have uh, context-rich vectors. So each ve each word now knows the context of the sentence that it's in. Then all that goes through layer level four, which is a feed-forward neural network. Why that's important, uh, John very elegantly put it last time. It adds flexibility to the learning process uh, because uh, it, it it adds additional weights, and also that's the only place in the whole architecture where we have an activation function. We haven't had any activation functions before prior to this. And then level five, these vectors go to level five where they go through a linear transformation to map them from the 512 dimensional space that they're in to the output space. And the output space in our case is uh, the whole, um, all of the words in the English language, which depending on how you count can be 200,000 or more. So we want to go from a 512 dimensional vector to a 200,000 dimensional vector. And then we apply a softmax to that vector uh, to get probabilities. So we get a probability distribution across all of the words of the English language, and that allows us to like, select something. One very important key consideration, something to keep in mind that I, uh, like we talked about in the previous podcast, and I want to reiterate now, is that each one of the vectors, so let's say we have apples are a type of delicious blank, right? So six words, they all go through this process separately, right? So they go we, at the end, we all the whole way through, we have six vectors. Then each one of the six vectors gets converted into those three QKV vectors. Then again, we get six vectors, six context-rich vectors. Then after the neural network, there's they go through a neural, uh, the feed-forward neural network. They go separately, so we have six of them on the output. And then afterwards, through the linear transformation, again, we get six vectors, 200,000 uh, values each, so six vectors, each one is 200,000 dimensional. Then we get six probability distributions, uh, each one with 200,000 values. And then we throw away the first five and we keep the last one. So the probability distribution that we extracted from the context rich vector of the word delicious, and we apply that to the all the words of the English language to predict what the next word is. That's very key consideration. They, these vectors don't get mixed. The only time they can get some information from each other is in that tension mechanism. Otherwise, they go through separately in parallel. And that's a very important part of the transformer architecture. Your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. If this is you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. 
NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. Download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com superdata. That's netsuite.com superdata. Very cool. This is a little bit of a, a tangent, and I don't expect you to know the answer. I don't really know it either. But as you were talking about that final layer, how the fifth layer has that linear transform with the dictionary of, and, and you say in the English language, and that assumes that this is like a single language yep. um, LLM. But of course, if we're using GPT-4 or Gemini or something like that, it can output Good in point. like hundreds of languages. So it's crazy to think how many uh tokens or how many words there must be in that dictionary. So one thing I was thinking about is, so what if we're not outputting words, Mm -hmm. but what if this is like Dolly three and we're outputting pixels, I guess it would be, um, I guess the probability map would be, um, some like pixel color, like the most probable color for a given location. Um, I don't know the answer to image, uh, version of transformers, but I do know, like, for example, in BERT, Right, you don't want to output a whole word, right? You just want to output a class, for example. Um, so you have that CLS token that gets added into the input at the beginning, and then the sentence goes through the BERT model, which you can talk about at the end. But basically, uh, effectively, what in the BERT model they have is they don't have the the mapping doesn't go to two hundred thousand vectors, but goes to your number of classes, which could be three classes, for example. You know, positive sentiment, neutral sentiment, negative sentiment. And that's it. So I guess in the image version, it would be somewhat similar. Nice. Anyway, just a little bit off topic. Today, we are mostly, or I guess other than that brief section, we're we're using examples entirely from text in, text out uh, transformer models. For sure. Okay, so that's how the, uh, what's it called, decoder model works. That's the... um, uh, LLMs are based, basically decoder only. So that was our quick recap. Now, what are we going to do today? We're going to add the, to make the full transform model, we have to add the encoder, which is on the diagram, is on the left. And this is going to be really easy because we have all these foundational building blocks. Effectively, if we're imagining, we're imagining the decoder as a five-story building standing up on its own, now we're going to add another building on the left. It's going to be a four-story building. So a four-story building is going to have uh, the same thing, input, input embedding, positional encoding, then it's going to have level three uh, self-attention mechanism, and then in level four is going to have the feed for all neural network. So all very similar, it doesn't, it doesn't have that output layer. Now, in order to connect them, we have to make a modification to our decoder model. So let's look at the part on the right again, the model that we that we were just talking about, uh, or the, the architecture we are just talking about, the decoder part. So we're gonna keep level one, two, and three intact, so up to the self-attention. Now, after the self-attention, we have the feed-forward neural network, and then after that, we have the linear output and, tra- and uh, softmax. We're going to lift the, the feed-forward neural network level four and level five, which is the um, linear transformation and softmax. We're going to lift them up, and under them, we're going to slot in another level, and we'll call it level 3B or 3.5, as you wish. So we're going to have level one, two, three. It's going to be one of those weird buildings where you have level three, and then you have level 3B, 
and then you have level four and five. And so level three B is another attention mechanism. It's called cross-attention. And we'll get to that in a bit. Um, but first, what we're going to do is let's talk about the encoder. So we know uh, what goes, how, how it works, right? So it's got those four levels that we discussed. We're actually going to look at an example right away. So to help us illustrate this, we're going to look at an example. Bear in mind, we're talking about inference, um, not training. We can mention training towards the end, but it will be very similar to how we talked about training for a um, for a decoder-only model. So we're going to look at an example. So transformers are basically uh, the original design of transformers. The full model was to translate sentences, right? So that's that's the use case that we're exploring in the research paper. We're going to look at the sentence, the cat sat on the mat. It's got six words, and we're going to translate it into Spanish, right? So we're going to pretend that this transformer has already been trained on how to translate uh, sentences into Spanish, and uh, we're going to see how it's going to work with this specific sentence during inference. How is it going to translate it? So the correct translation is El... Uh, I don't know Spanish, so I might butcher this, but it's El Gato Se Sento en El Tapete. Right, so the cat sat on the mat. Uh, and here, gato is cat, sesento sat, tapete is on the mat. Sounded pretty good to me. <laughs> I don't really know Spanish either, but I buy it. <laughs> Thanks, man. So we're going to translate that sentence into Spanish. What happens, right? So the decoder, encoder, right? Let's talk about the encoder first, the, the building on the left, the four-story building. All of the English words are going to go into this encoder part. The cat sat on the mat, six words. They're going to go through positional encoding. Uh, sorry, they're going to go through a vector embedding. So uh, yeah, so they're going to get um, their vectors uh, with uh, semantic meaning. Then they're going to go through positional encoding, which we've already discussed. Then they're going to go through the self-attention mechanism. So they they're going to the whole QKV process is going to happen, and the each one of these vectors will get a context. Uh, each one of these words will get a context-rich vector. So now we have six context-rich vectors, and then in level four, each one of these six context-rich vectors will go through a feed-forward neural network. And uh, to add some more flexibility, add more parameters, so it, it becomes even more able to understand um, the complexities of language and so on. So uh, after that feed-forward neural network, we'll have six vectors, which are contextually super-rich. Let's call them super-contextually rich vectors or super-vectors after being contextually rich because they went through the feed-forward neural network with the activation function. Uh, and we'll call them vectors uh, O for output, output of the encoder. So those are six O vectors sitting there. Um, and we'll just put a pin in that. So we have six vectors that went through the four levels of the building on the left, which is the encoder, and they're sitting on the rooftop, right? That's that. We have now uh, created a good representation, a very rich representation of our English sentence. And we're going to use that when translating. Now, the main part, in my view, I would call it the main part of this translation process, happens in the decoder, right? So um, uh, uh, when we, uh, like all of the, it's going to be like large language models, it's going to, it's, sorry, it's going to be like uh, a GPT model where we're generating text from a prompt. The only difference is the best way to think about it is like we're generating text, but with a condition on it, right? So for argument's sake, let's see, let's say we've already generated three words. So out of our sentence that we need to translate into, which is el gato se sento en la tapete, let's say we've already generated three words, el gato se, right? So we already have that as output. Remember, um, decoder, decoders generate one word at a time. So you generate el, then something happened, then you generate gato, then something happened, then generate se, then something happened. Now we're going to find out how does it do it? How is it going to generate the fourth word? 
So we have this output so far, Elgato Se, right? So, and the output comes from the decoder part, from the, the top of the decoder. Remember we have where we have those uh, probability distributions. That's where we'll be getting the output. So now we have this, um, these three words, Elgato Se. What's going to happen is they're going to go back into the decoder at the bottom in Spanish. Uh, they're going to get their vector embeddings. So each one of these three words, Elgato Se, will have a... Um, semantically rich vector. So it'll have the dictionary meaning associated with it or encoded in that vector. Then they will get the positional encoding on level two. Um, as we discussed, that's important. Then they'll go to level three. They will, the attention mechanism will happen among these same three words. So el gato se. These words will get to understand the context of what they have so far of this three word sentence. That context will be coded into the vectors for these words. After level three of the decoder, um, each one of these words will have a context-rich vector, so a Spanish context-rich vector with the Spanish sentence that they ha we have so far of three words. Now it'll go into level 3b, and this is where the interesting thing will happen. This is kind of like the, the biggest um, in ad addition that we're doing today compared to the previous uh, episode 747. So what's going to happen now is there's going to be cross-attention. So we have these three Spanish vectors going into this level 3b, and at the same time, on the building on the left, we can see there, there's six vectors, six English vectors sitting. They're context-rich, they're ready to go, right? So if we were not to look at those, the encoder at all, let's just imagine, forget about encoder. What will happen if these three vectors just keep going? There's no level 3B, they just keep going through the decoder. What will happen? Well, they'll go into the feed-forward neural network, uh, then they'll go into the linear transformation and softmax, and as before, as with any large language model, they will, or GPT model, um, they will, or decoder only model, they, we will produce the next word, right? So they will produce the next word. So based on El Gato Se, that's like a prompt for what's the next word. The next word could be uh, paro, like the, the cat stood. The next word could be relajo, the cat relaxed. Uh, the next the word could be escondio, the cat hid, right? Those are all valid next words. It like makes sense to put a verb next. Uh, and the and the like a um, decoder only model, like a large language model, would just just produce this next word, which is great. It could create a whole sentence. But that would have nothing to do with the translation, right? We don't want it to create the the a sentence based like it would just give us the next most likely word based on what it's, what it's seen in the Spanish language in understanding in the corpus of text that is seen in the Spanish language. What, it, what we wanted to generate is not just the most likely next word. We wanted to generate the most likely next word based on what it's seen in training data, but conditioned on the inputs in English that we gave. it. So this is where this uh, level 3B, the cross-attention, comes in. So let's rewind. Uh, these uh, Spanish words went through level 1, through level 2, through level 3, through the normal attention. Now they come into this cross-attention. What happens here is that from each one of the vectors that we have, we already have context-rich vectors for these Spanish words. From each one of these uh, vectors, we're going to create three vectors. We're going to create another, Q oh, actually not three. We're going to create one vector. So normally in attention, we create QKV, but at this time, we're just going to create the Q vector. So for each one of the Spanish words, we will have a Q vector created. And the KV vectors, instead of creating them from the same Spanish words, we're going to create them from the English words sitting at the top of the encoder. Right, we have those six English uh, context-rich words on the left in the image. Um, instead of creating QKV vectors from each one, we're just going to create the K and V vectors. 
So now we have, um, now we can. Okay, okay, okay. I'm just, I'm just going to interrupt you for Go a second. Ahead. So I can kind of, this seems like a pivotal, a pivotal moment. So I'm going to kind of recap and you can confirm for me that I'm getting this right. Sure. So we've got two uh, kind of buildings next to each other or, you know, two or one structure with slightly different heights right next to each other. So um, I guess maybe it's kind of easier to think of like two buildings next to each other because they can have like their separate elevator systems or whatever. And so on the left, we have the encoder, yes. which is four stories. Mm -hmm. And those that's completely new in terms of what we've been talking about on this podcast. In episode number 747, we only talked about the right-hand building, which had five stories. Now we've got this building on the left, which has four, but we've also, in order to allow these two buildings to communicate effectively with each other, you've added in an extra floor, 3B, between the third floor and the fourth floor on the right-hand decoder building. Correct. So, um, as, so we have flowing up the kind of the elevator on the encoder building on the left is the English yes. language um, that, we're, we, that we want to have translated into yes. Spanish. And then on the right-hand side, there is Spanish language flowing upwards as well. And then they meet at this 3B. So information flows from left to right from the fourth floor, the top floor of the left-hand mm -hmm. encoder tower. It flows into level 3B of the decoder tower. And that's where this, this self-attention, this powerful thing is happening where- Cross-attention. Um, the cue, cross-attention, where, yes, 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 right, 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 right. So the self-attention is within one tower yes. itself. So the decoder has self-attention. That's a really key yeah. thing here. Thank you, yes. And, and so the, the decoder, decoder has self-attention yeah. as well, its own self. Has its own self-attention. And that was level, that was level yes. three in Self-attention is always level three. Nice. And then now in this 3B on the right-hand side decoder, we've got cross-attention, which is blending the vectors, those K, the Q, K, and V vectors that we recapped. And again, you can get tons of information on those from the preceding episode that Carol was on, episode number 747. But it's the the Q vector, the query vector comes from the encoder, the left-hand side. No, no, from in this the decoder. Case, Q vector comes from, oh, the, from decoder. the decoder. Because the, 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 the Spanish words the need yeah. the context. Right. And the Q right, vector right, is the right, query. Right, it's right, like, right. I need this context. Do you have it? I need this context. Do you have it? That's the Q vector. So that is in the, in the nice. right side. Q vector is on the right yeah. on the Spanish side yeah. in the decoder. And then the K and the V are on the left on the encoder. Correct. Nice. Okay. And so those blend together. And so it's a beautiful thing. So it's allowing that same kind of structure, these three vectors, the Q, the K, and the V, which previously, as we learned about in the self-attention, allowing us to figure out what the next token uh, should be appropriately. Now we're getting, yeah, that same kind of mechanism, but being applied across these two different um, sources of information and blending them together so that you're getting context from one side and how would you describe, could you describe, so if Q is the context? No, is, K and V is yes. the context. K is the key and V is the value that contains the context. Yeah, yeah. So then how could you, is there like a way that we could sum up the Q side as like the complement to context? Like It's hard. It's hard to say. It's just a mechanism, really. I would say the, the context is, is inside the V vectors. The Q and K is just an indexing mechanism. It's like... 
Q, this is what I'm interested in. Like, tell me about, I'm going to gonna add like human um, interpretation to this. Obviously, the transformer doesn't do this, but just for uh, argument's sake, let's say uh, the word, we have el gato se, right? So the word se is like, Oh, I'm curious about what what action is being performed. You know, I need context about a verb. Give me context about a verb. So the Q value in human understanding would be like, oh, I'm looking for verbs. And then on the uh, encoder side, they, we've got the six uh, English words, the cat sat on the mat. And so they have the K vectors. Again, this is butchering it, but it's very approximate, approximate but it's better for understanding. Each one of those K value K vectors is going to have information. What context do I have? And so maybe the word cat, it'll have a K vector saying, I'm a noun. And the the cat sat, the word sad has the K vector saying, I'm a verb. I've got a verb inside here. If you want to look for a verb, look in here. Uh, sat on the mat. And then the, the word mad has the K vector saying, oh, I'm a subject or I'm an object. You know, like the, the cat might have, I'm a subject, I'm a noun and I'm a subject. The, the word mat might have, I'm a... I'm a object and I'm a noun and I'm an object. And then the word the is like, I'm an article. You know, if you need information on articles, look inside here. And so the, the Q vector for the word se, which is like, is this, as I understand in Spanish, it's the start of a verb, but it's like, what's the next verb? What's the next verb? How do I, what's the context for this whole situation? It goes and it's like, I need a verb. And it goes across these K vectors like, no, you're not a verb. You're not a verb. Oh, you got a verb inside. Let me look inside the a V vector for the word sat. And inside sat is like, oh, I'm a verb for sitting down. This is what it feels like, you know, blah, blah, blah. And um, that's where the Q kind of query, it tells the, communicates through dot product with the K vectors of what it's looking for. When it finds a match, boom, it looks for the V, which contains the context that it needs. Last month, HPE and Intel together showcased the power of RAG, Retrieval Augmented Generation, to bring relevant business data to your LLMs. In this month's free workshop, you can learn about the art of fine-tuning embedding models to deliver verifiable conversational chatbots using the HPE machine learning development environment powered by Intel Xeon scalable processors. No matter your experience level, join us to learn practical techniques to build trustworthy chatbots with guaranteed behavior for enterprise applications. Visit hpe.com slash esmeral slash chatbots to register today. We've got the link for you in the show notes. Beautiful, man. You've really got this down now. I feel like, I mean, you obviously had it down even when we recorded 747, but it is very tight for you in your mind. It's like second nature. <laughs> Thanks, man. Thanks. Spent six months on this. <laughs> Instead, I thought it was going to take four weeks. It took six months. It's literally been six months now. But I'm very glad. I'm very glad that, um, yeah, I uh, got through this. Um, yeah. Okay, yeah. So I, I derailed you as you were No, no, that was that was really good to clarify. Thank yeah. you. And I didn't have this example in mind to share about I just just came up with this now about the uh the verb, the noun, and so on. I think that's very that was very helpful. What what I wanted to add, I love your elevator analogy. So we have the two systems, the building on the left, the elevator goes all the way to level four. There's a small little bridge from level four of the encoder on the left to the three B level on the decoder on the right. That's where the values, the KV value. You just walk across and they, as you said, they blend with the Q values. A very important point is that the elevator on the encoder works only once. It's a one-way, one-off elevator. So the English words get in to the encoder and they go room to the top and they sit there. It doesn't happen every time. And this is like, you, like, I love these podcasts because they force me to think, like, go outside my comfort area and like 
force like the barriers. Like I, I, I figured this out yesterday. You know, I was like, all right, I've I've learned Transformers for a, for five months. I know, I know what I'm gonna say. I I'm I do I even need to prepare? And I sat down and prepared anyway. And I thought the elevator keeps going up every time, and you were just hearing. But no, it goes up once, and they sit there. Why? Why would it need to go up every time? Right? It's the same six words. You know, your input English sentence doesn't change, so it makes sense. So these six words get into the encoder. They go up the elevator, they sit at the top, and they have these six context-rich vectors that are used again and again and again. I think it's also a really good point to make that about the elevator only going up once, because that's the whole idea of the compute efficiency of this. Yes. So something that you mentioned, going back to that attention is all you need paper and the eight different authors, they were specifically working together to come up with a computationally efficient mechanism that would work well on modern GPUs, and the elevator only going up once is a great example of how you're going to get more compute efficiency from this process. So that's absolutely correct in terms of um, computer efficiency. So now let's recap what we have. So uh, we have El Gato Se, these three Spanish words, right? So on the left, we have the English words that went up the encoder and they're sitting there. That happens only once up that elevator. They're context rich. We have these context rich vectors. We'll call them O vectors. Now on the right, we have these. Uh, Spanish, uh, three Spanish words. They go through level one, through level two, then they go through the self-attention mechanism in level three, where they get QKV vectors. Through that mechanism, uh, each word gets a context-rich vector. Let's call those vectors A. Now, at the end of level three, we have three uh, context-rich vectors, which are vectors A, um, for one for each word. And then all of those vectors A go into this self-attention, uh, or sorry, cross-attention mechanism, level 3B. So we have... Um, on the one hand, we have the O vectors from the encoder, the output of the encoder, six of those vectors, right? So the, the English sentence. Uh, sentence. Uh, and then we have the A vectors for the three words in Spanish. And all of that is going to get merged in the uh, cross-attention. By merged, what, what we mean is that from each uh, A vector, we will create only Q vectors, right? So the K and V vectors are not even computed. So only Q vectors are computed from the A vectors inside the decoder side of things. Um, so we'll have one Q vector for every Spanish word. And then on the English side of things, the Q vectors are not computed, but the K and V vectors are computed. So we'll have a K and V vector for every English word. As we just discussed, the cross-attention mechanism will happen. And um, from there, the Q vectors will look for the context they need using the K vectors. They'll find it, and the context will be taken from the V vectors. And from that, uh, we will create new context-rich representations in the decoder side of things for each one of the Spanish words. So now we will have, uh, let's call them vectors B, right? Because it came out of level 3B, we have a B vector for the word L, a B vector for the word gato, and a B vector for the word se. Now these B vectors, they take into account the context that came from the English sentence. And from here, everything is the same. So now these B vectors, as, as before, the B vectors go through the feed-forward neural network. Um, each one of them goes through the feed-forward neural network. And then each one of them goes through the uh, linear transformation and softmax to get the output. So from each one of the Spanish words, right? So we had uh, El Gato Se. From each one of them, we'll get a, um, uh, what's it called? Probability distribution with 200,000 values or however many uh, 100,000 words there are in the Spanish language. And uh, we'll throw away the first two, as we did previously. We'll throw away all of the probability distribution except for the last one, which in this case is the one that we derived from the word se. And we'll apply that probability distribution of 200,000 
or however many values to all of the words or tokens in the Spanish language. And that will give us the probabilities for them. Basically, we'll know which word, the one with the highest probability, is the one that we're going to use next. And in this case, it's not going to be like a paro. It's not going to be stood or relaxed or hit, right? Paro, relajo, escondido. We know because the the predict or the, this generation is now constrained uh, or conditioned on the English language sentence. Now there's no choice for the decoder but to say that the next word is going to be sento, right? The prediction is going to be that the cat sat on the mat, right? It, it can't say if the word sentence input sentence in English is the cat sat on the mat, it wouldn't be able to say that the, in Spanish that the cat relaxed on the mat because that would be contradictory to the context that it got from the English sentence. And that's basically, that's what how it works. So the best way to think about the full transformer model is imagine it as just a decoder-only model that's generating text, but because of that level 3B that we added in, it's generating text based on what it's seen in training data in that language, but it has that text has to be conditioned on the input sentence we gave it in the original language. And that's all it is. That's all it is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, yes. Um, a very interesting thing that I wanted to discuss is why is there no masking, right? So there's only masking. We talked about masking in the previous episode. Can I ask a sure. question before we get to masking? So <clears throat> we something that we discussed in the preceding episode, and then we've also had in um, a couple of other episodes because we've had some amazing authors on... Uh, Transformers on the show in the past. So for example, we had David Foster in episode number 687, and we had Lewis Tunstall in episode number 695. And both of these guys, great experts in Transformers, even they didn't get anywhere near. I mean, we have never had an episode like your episode 747 or this episode today, where we are going so deep into I, I'm sure the I'm sure they know way more than me. <laughs> it's just like we designed this episode to be so technical. Yeah, I'm not. I don't. Mean, I'm not trying to make that kind of comparison at all. Um, you know, they they stayed more. They stayed a little. You know, we didn't get into the mechanics of each level mm -hmm. of a transformer and what's happening. Um, but something that we did talk about in those episodes was how, and, and something that we talked about in your 747, I think, if I remember correctly was that we talked about how an encoder-only architecture like BERT is great for things like natural language understanding. So with a with the encoder, so this whole episode, we've been trying to talk about encoders and decoders together. Mm -hmm, That's the two mm -hmm. buildings. But you can have transformers where you just have encoder-only, the left-hand building. Yep. And when you do that, you can't be generating text with that. Yep. But you can be um, encoding yep. <laughs> Uh, natural language into a vector. So like, I mean, that's, <laughs> we have all these, we have these output vectors. And so you end up with an output vector out of the encoder that allows you to have a numeric representation of the semantic meaning of whatever words went in. So this can be great for lots of different use cases like classification tasks or sorting tasks. So this is something that we do at my company Nebula all the time. It's a core part of what we do. We're trying to help people um, find great candidates for jobs, say based on a job description. So you'll convert the job description, you'll encode it using a BERT-like architecture, take the natural language of the job description, encode that into a vector. And then we have a database of 200 million people, basically all the working population in the US. And we have already pre-computed 
the vectors using a BERT-like architecture from, from the natural, all the natural language that we could find on each of these 200 million people. So it's like, you can think of it as like a spreadsheet with, um, say, uh, we happen to have, I mean, let's say we have 200 length vectors. You could think of it as a spreadsheet with, and, uh, with, with 200 million rows and 200 columns. So for each of the 200 million people, um, you have their location in, in basically this 200 dimensional space. And given this new job description that we encode in real time, we can then compare, okay, who is closest to this job description? Who's gonna be the best fit from these 200 million people? So that's like an example of how encoding on its own can be super powerful using a BERT-like architecture. The decoder, the right tower, is very useful for any time you wanna generate text because because it outputs a sequence of tokens. Um, it outputs a sequence of words. So it's, I feel like it's very easy for me to understand at this point in my journey with these things that encoders are great when you wanna be encoding natural language into a vector for whatever kind of task, classification or ranking. And then you wanna use a decoder when you wanna be generating text. Why? What, would we want to use an encoder and a decoder together? What is the advantage that that full transformer architecture gets us that I can't get with a decoder alone? Great question. Great question. Um, uh, for, I wanted to say first, uh, I loved your location in a 200-dimensional space. I, when you said that, I was like, uh, you know, like data privacy and stuff like that, like your address you needs to be private. Maybe is it would be funny if people... If we had to make it private, that where you, where your location in the two hundred dimensional spaces, that's like, <laughs> like your private data. Um, and uh, just quickly to comment on what you said about the encoder, uh, absolutely correct that it's uh, it's um, you can uh, capture the meaning or semantics or some whatever you need of a text in a vector. It's not, but just for the for the sake of our listeners, it's not what we did in this case. We we got oh, to, right, 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 we right, got right. to the point where each vector and the encoder those six English words they have their own context rich vector. What John is talking about is if you throw away the decoder part and on top of those context rich vectors you add the fifth layer that we're used to the uh, linear transformation plus the um, what's it called softmax function and then um, what you would also have so like basically in the bird architecture you would have your six words like the cat sat on the mat. But at the beginning, you would add a separate, a secret token that is not visible to you know, like the, the naked eye of the person you know, typing. It's like just for processing reasons. It's called the uh, what's it called? A CLS token, the class token. So it gets added at the beginning of that sentence, and then now when you're processing that input, forget about the decoder side. Just imagine you only have the left tower on its own. When the vectors go through uh, that part, the uh, CLS token also gets its. Um, vector embedding, it also gets a positional encoding. It participates in the whole self-attention mechanism of the encoder, and then it goes through layer four. It also gets that feed for all neural network applied. And then all of those six plus one vectors now go through the, um, uh, out the linear transformation to get mapped to a certain, let's say, space, like a three-dimensional three space, like uh, or let's say in your case, a 200-dimensional space, right? Like you want... Um, 200 dimensions uh, out of your uh, context that you're giving. 
and uh, you get those some values in, the, in those in that two hundred dimensional space. Or let's say if you're doing the sentiment analysis, it's a three dimensional space, and then you throw away all the vectors except for the first one. You keep the CLS vector. Uh, you, you're interested in what class did the CLS vector mm. get, and that's how the encoder mm -hmm. uh, only architecture called BERT works. Right, right, right. That is a really key piece of information here. So in the encoder decoder that we've been talking about most of this episode yeah. until I derail things just now, um, with that, you have the vectors coming out for each of the positions in the encoded sequence. Yeah. So each of the words, so all of that rich context, whereas in the kind of situation that I'm describing where you want to be Bert. doing some classification task, yeah, Bert, where you want to be doing some kind of natural language understanding task and just have the encoder, you're not worried about generation, then you're using that CLS vector to collapse everything down to just one vector in the end. Because otherwise you have like, yeah, you'd have a vector for every single yeah, every single word in the input sequence, which would be like overwhelming. There might be, I don't know, like, who knows? Maybe like for somebody that like is useful. I mean, obviously it is useful when we're passing all that information to a decoder. So you could imagine maybe somehow someone else has come up with some other kind of application where like all of that information is useful, but that's it's probably very, very rare. Yeah. For the most part, it's yeah, you're using the CLS token to get just one vector out for your entire. So in my case, you don't want to have when I put a job description in, you don't want to get a vector out for every word in the job description. You just want one vector for the whole job description altogether. And that CLS vector, the mechanism that you just described, allows Well, us to get you that. technically will get a vector for every word in your job description, but then you will just disregard them. You will have, like, let's say yeah. you have a thousand uh, vec words in your job description. Now you're adding the CLS at the beginning. Now there's a thousand and one vectors. They all have to go through level three of the encoder. They have to go to level one, two, three, because that's where self-attention happens. And that's where the CLS, the vector for CLS will be enriched with the context from the thousand other vectors. And then from there, it doesn't matter. The other thousand vectors don't matter. From there, the CLS, uh, you can throw them away. Uh, the CLS will have to go through the feed forward neural network, and then we'll go and get to the uh, output, uh, like linear transformation and the softmax, and you'll get your whatever you need from the CLS from there. But at least up to the uh, self-attention mechanism, all of the vectors have to go up to that point. Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah, I was imagining that in my head, like that was obvious yeah, to yeah, me, yeah, but yeah. it's very, very important to be able to make that like explicit that, yeah, so you need all of the vectors for all of the words say in the job description in order to be able to do the computation of the encoder but then out of the final layer all i want is one vector representing the whole job description not each of the words. yes yes and and so this this the mechanism that you described with the cls token provides for that very cool all right so question. yeah why why what's the point that, yeah, yeah very interesting why, why an encoder decoder? very interesting yeah. um I looked into this, and by no means am I a researcher, so I might, I'm not best positioned to answer this question, and uh, I might, I'm, I'd be happy to be corrected on this. But based on what I've seen, GPT models are able to perform any task that a transformer model uh, was designed to perform. So even to the point of translation, because... GPT models, or no, I'm just not talking about just, um, basically I'm talking about decoder-only models. So decoder-only models, because they're seeing so much training data, which contains both English and French and Spanish and all these other languages, 
and examples of translations and examples of the same text translated into another language, they're able to like, well, how can you just put into uh, ChatGPT some text and it'll translate? Yes, of course, you know, like you can fine tune a uh, decoder only model after training to translate better, to better to understand the different uh, nuances of translation. But already in their raw format, they're able to do translations. And uh, like I, I am again, I'm happy to be corrected, but I can't think of a single task that you would uh, specifically need a transformer architecture to do rather than just using a decoder only. What do you think, John? Yeah, and so and so when you say transformer architecture, you mean because the decoder only is. A I mean the full transformer. Right? But so, so yeah, the full transformer architecture. Yeah, I think I think maybe twice there, just to like disambiguate. Yes, yes. And so in like the last few sentences when you said when you were contrasting transformer versus decoder, you're saying like full transformer encoder decoder model. Yes, correct. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, I. It, Maybe it has something to do with like scale that like I'm I'm kind of guessing here, but maybe when you had if you weren't so now today things like a GPT architecture that are decoder only they're so gigantic with supposedly this the the, the um, well regarded rumor yeah. regarding GPT four is that in aggregate across all of it's probably composed of about eight different experts. And when you add up all those expert models together, it's probably over 2 trillion model parameters mm. in total. And so I think maybe what's happened is that as you've gotten to such enormous decoder architectures, they are able to, in those weights, they have to be able to figure out how to encode in some way anyway. And all the, this enormous amount of weights allows that to happen, especially over all of the layers of transformers, which we didn't talk about in this episode, but you talk about the end of 747, where you talk about how the you have many layers of, of transformers. Like you don't just have one, you have even GPT-2, there's different sizes of GPT-2, but there were even GPT-2s many years ago where there were dozens of transformer layers doing. So I think the idea is that the decoder, a gigantic decoder-only model like a GPT-3, a GPT-4, it just has so many model weights that it figures out how to encode the, the, the important information in the decoder um, itself. But maybe if we wanted to have a smaller model with fewer model weights, perhaps that explicit encoder functionality would allow the context to be stored you know, for things, for tasks like uh, content comprehension. So like if you're going to have some generative task that depends a lot on content comprehension, maybe the encoder, especially if we're trying to, I'm speculating here, but if we're trying to have a relatively small model in terms of weights, then maybe that encoder part will allow the, um, like a richer understanding of the context given a smaller number of model weights and then pass that mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. that understanding quote unquote off to the decoder for its generative mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, capabilities yeah that's a very interesting point and another way to also think about like while, while you were speaking uh, the, this idea came to me that imagine like you're translating a huge um, it's, it's about context window like imagine you're translating like a, a one one page uh, or ten pages of English text into Spanish, right? So what happens with if we're using a decoder-only model? 
you put that English text into the decoder-only model, you see a prompt, translate into Spanish, and then it generates the first word. And then it takes all of that plus the first word, puts it back in, into itself, generates the second word, and then takes all of that, puts it back into itself, generates the third word, and so on. So as it's generating more words, it's having to re, um, rerun the vectors and all of the calculations for the English text, for your 10 pages of English text, right? And plus, they're going further and further away inside the context window. Um, but if you use the transformer, full transformer architecture, then the English text goes into the encoder. And as we said, that's a one-off elevator. It goes up that elevator once. Those 10 pages get encoded into words once, into vectors once. And you don't, you don't need to re-encode them. They're not changing. So then the, uh, the decoder model is just generating its word-by-word -word thing, but it always has these 10 pages of vectors to reference in the English language. It doesn't have to regenerate them. So uh, it's also more compute efficient in that sense. I, yeah, interestingly, though, I think somehow it ends up being the other way around. I think that somehow, and I, I can't explain this, maybe it's, it's something we can try to mm -hmm. figure out for a future episode, but my understanding is that one of the big draws is that overall a decoder-only architecture ends up being more compute efficient. Oh, okay. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. yeah. So so even, even though, yes, absolutely what you're saying is true at like that, the encoder, the, the elevator only yeah, goes up yeah. the encoder one time, um, the overall effect is that having like the main drawback of an encoder-decoder model yeah. seems to be less computational efficiency. Yeah. However that encoder allows for extra context, allows for extra understanding. It could theoretically, I guess, outperform a decoder-only model, especially where lots of um, context is important, like you're saying. Um, but the decoder-only ends up being so much more compute efficient that where we are right now is that the biggest, most effective, models out there like GPT-4 use the decoder-only approach because it's so much more compute efficient and therefore cheaper for OpenAI and to be running those servers and, and giving us the results. And 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 so it ends up being this trade-off where you can, you can save on compute by going decoder-only and you scale up the amount of trans, of layers and, and parameters in that decoder-only architecture and that ends up somehow, <laughs> by ways that I don't fully understand, managing in that decoder-only structure to capture enough of the context that it outperforms or, or it performs more than well enough despite the encoder not being there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's, that's a very good uh, point. And I'm sure there'll be a time when we'll uncover that on the podcast as well. Maybe some guest with research experience will be able to answer that question. Yeah, that'd be great. Maybe one of the authors of the Attention is All You Need yeah, paper. Yeah. That'd be pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that'd be cool. They could finally, they could turn. And so, yeah, so we're a little bit of conjecture here, though some, you know, yeah. So again, to caveat, Kirill, neither Kirill nor I are transformer experts in the sense of publishing papers on transformers, yeah. but this seems to be... Um, yeah, I have some some references up as I'm saying yeah. the things that I'm saying here that seem reliable. Um, you talked about layers. Uh, can let's jump into uh, layers for the full transformer architecture, and uh, yeah, see how that works there. Please do. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, because this ties into the masking that you were going to talk um, about too. Masking, right? yeah, we can either talk, maybe let's cover masking first and then we'll do the layers. So uh, what okay. I wanted to say about masking is that um, actually masking ties in nicely into BERT. So, but we'll start with masking on the decoder side. As we remember from uh, episode 747, uh, there's masking in the um, self-attention mechanism uh, on layer three. Technically, the full name of that mechanism is the dot product uh, cell masked dot product uh, mul masked multi-head dot product self-attention. <laughs> Seven words to describe that module. So uh, why masking? Well, masking uh, prevents during training, during training, masking prevents the transformer from looking ahead. And what we discussed in episode 747 uh, towards the end is that why transformers are so incredibly powerful is because they don't learn like one sentence at a time. They don't see just one example and they learn to predict next word. They see, let's say you give it a thousand words, then because it's a triangular mask, um, when it's processing the first word, the first word can't see any other words. Then the second word can only see the first and second word. The third word can see only the second, first, first, second, third word, and so on. So every word can only see the words up to itself and including itself during the attention mechanism. So when it's getting that context-rich vector, and because all of these words are processed parallel, in parallel, what by design the transformer is able to achieve is that when you give it a thousand words as input. And it's you're asking you're, it's not just learning to predict the thousand and first word. It's learning to predict the thousand first word from the first thousand. It's learning to predict the thousandth word from the first nine hundred ninety nine. It's learning to predict the nine hundred ninety ninth word from the first nine hundred ninety eight. It's just pick any any sequence inside there. It's learning to predict the seventh word from the six first six words. So all of that happens in parallel. So it's able to see a thousand training, um, like calculate a thousand training errors in one go. And then from that, calculate the combined loss function and uh, do back propagation. So that's why masking, we have masking in the first part, first self-attention, which is in the decoder, level three. The question is, why don't we have masking in the self-attention inside the encoder, level three? And why don't we have masking inside of the um, cross-attention, inside the decoder, which is level three B? So... Uh, the first uh, the first one out of these two, the one in the encoder, we don't have masking inside the encoder because we want uh, the English uh, language words or the input language words that end up at the top of the decoder. We want them to have context-rich vectors that are fully aware of the whole input sentence or paragraph that we're translating. If you think about it, when you're translating a paragraph, you know the paragraph in advance, right? Except for if you're doing like, um, what's it called? Simultaneous translation with somebody speaking, and then you don't know what they're going to say. That's a different situation. Maybe you know the architecture there should be different. But in most cases, you already know the full paragraph or page that you need to translate. So when you're translating it, you have the full context. So that's why, in the encoder side, the there's no hiding of context from um, from the encoder. It just gets all of the context right away, um, and all of the words can see each other in the self attention. And then in the cross-attention, now let's say we have this sentence uh, which we're translating like the cat's out on the mat. Now we've got these first three words, el gato se. Uh, we've created, we generated them in, in Spanish already. So when we did the self-attention in level three, there was masking, right? So during training, they would not have visibility of the other words. But when you get to, um, when you get to now the cross-attention, 
think about it when you're translating as a human. And this was, uh, I mentioned this in episode 747, Dmitry Bazdano sent this into in his reply to Andrew Karpathy in an email, which Andrew Karpathy uh, talks about in one of his YouTube videos. So uh, Dmitry Bagdano, who came up with this attention mechanism in an earlier paper, says that English wasn't his first language. And when he was learning English, the way he would learn to translate is, or the way he would translate sentences is, he would have this original language sentence and then he would need to translate it, let's say, into English. And he would write, let's say, first word, second, third word. And then you're writing the fourth word. You're not trying to like keep in mind all of the words that were there or some part of them that were in the, you know, in the original sentence. You you have access to all of them. You take a pen and you look through them and you read through the whole context and so on. So when you're translating uh, from one language to another, um, you need the full context of the input language as well. So that's why we don't have masking in the cross attention. So very important to remember in the decoder, the, in the encoder decoder architecture, there's only one place where there's masking, and that is the first uh, self attention inside the decoder. Very good explanation. That makes a huge amount Thank of sense. You. And by the way, that really ties in well to BERT. So um, just as a quick reminder for those who don't know, like BERT, interestingly, the abbreviation stands for bidirectional encoder representations from transformers. And the keyword there, you know, like encoder representations, right? Already talks about that it's in the encoder, so you don't need the decoder mode. So if we look at the encoder-only model by itself, like a BERT model, then it has um, attention, self-attention, but it doesn't have masking. And that's where the word bidirectional in, in the abbreviation BERT comes from, because the words inside the that you put into that you put into an encoder-only model. They're able, the context, when they're creating context, they're able to look forward and backwards, right? So it doesn't matter. There's no, there's no triangle or mask to limit each word from looking ahead. It can look ahead, even in training. It can look ahead. It can look at the whole thing because we're trying to take all the context. We're not trying to generate text. We're trying to create, or our goal is not to generate text. Our goal is to uh, create a representation of this text, like classify it or, you know, get like some 200 values about somebody's, job experience. So you need some sort of data and you want to look through all the data. And that's the power of BERT, that it's bi-directional. Uh, and, and that comes from, like the goals are different. So decoder-only model, you generate text. So GPT, generative pre-trained transformers. It's got the word generative in there. So it's got a, another way of thinking about it also is that uh, decoder-only models are causal, right? So they, they there's a cause and effect. So certain words cause other words that fall in the sentence. You can't, you don't know, you shouldn't, allow the model to see the words that are coming ahead in training. Whereas in the BERT model, which is bidirectional, it's non-causal, right? It, it, there is no cause and effect there. The, you want to look at all of the words. And um, yeah, that's where the abbreviation BERT stands for. It's because there is no masking that it is bidirectional. Yeah, nice. So I'm going to repeat back some of that that you just said uh, on masking. And that was a really great explanation. So the whole point of masking is so that when you have a generative task, um, like you said, a causal task, you're trying to predict what the next token should be based on the tokens that have already been output. And therefore, in that kind of situation, it would be like if you imagined in like a time series prediction where you're trying to predict the stock market price tomorrow, you couldn't train a model that gets access to stock market prices in the future and in the past and try to use that to predict the same the stock future. prices is going to be tomorrow. Because 
Yeah, like because you, you like you then during training you have access to future information that during inference time you're obviously not going to have information about what the stock market's going to be tomorrow. Yeah. And so this is a similar kind of thing where for a generative task, if you could see ahead what the next word is supposed to be in the training data set, yeah. then you just you 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 don't need a model for that. You're just it's just perfect information. Yeah. So the masking hides like what the future stock price is going to be in this in case. Training. Like it's it's high. In, tra- in training, yeah, yeah. So that, um, so that, yeah, that way you're you're making, yeah, you're you're getting a model that is going to work well in real world circumstances. Um, and so, yeah, it's just it's something that's like the very nature of this causal of this generative task is being able to predict, predict the next token. And so, it's essential that we mask that we hide what the next tokens would be during training. Otherwise the model is just, it's just memorizing. Yeah. It's not, it's not learning. It's going to be useless. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas in contrast with an encoder, like an encoder only architecture like BERT, all of the context can be used, mm-hmm. which is great because you're in that case, you're not trying to predict what the next token is going to be. You're trying to do some classification task, and that can end up being what the extra power of an encoder like BERT can be when you're thinking about, like I was describing the ranking um, ranking people for a job or doing a classification task. In that kind of scenario, because you don't have this, you're not trying to be causal, you're not trying to predict what the next token is going to be, you are. You might as well make use of all of the context, every all of the words that follow, as well as are ahead of a given word of interest in the input text. Absolutely. Great, great summary. Um, it's interesting you mentioned uh, GPT or you mentioned uh, like predicting stock prices. Uh, in case uh, listeners, listeners listeners might find this interesting, I was looking at a few use cases of large language models in, in business and Bloomberg in uh, March, uh, I think March 2023 or like first, second quarter 2023, they uh, released their Bloomberg GPT, which has 50 billion parameters and it was the first of its kind GPT model trained on financial data. And um, yeah, it basically outperforms similarly sized NLP models or non-specialized GPT models because it was trained specifically on financial data. So indeed, that is a very good use case example. But in that case, I think if I remember correctly with Bloomberg GPT, that while it is trained on financial data, it is still a text generating model. It's not a like it's not a stock price prediction. Yeah, I I don't, I don't know the details of that. I you, yeah, you're right. Like it it might be. It's the the idea would be that you could consult with it like it's like you know it, it has the knowledge of all of the greatest like Wall Street analysts, yeah, yeah, yeah. and so you can ask it questions like, you know, I'm thinking of buying Disney. Um, what kinds of factors do I need to like look out for as I make this purchase? Like, what are the you know potential pros and cons? It's not like it, it's not it isn't a it's not a, it's not predicting stock. That's a prices, good correction. Yeah, I, I don't yeah. know enough about it to to comment on that. You, you, I think you are right in that sense. So um, another cool, relevant, and this is going to be very highly technical question, which took me probably a few days to figure out the answer to, um, is we talked about masking oh no what am i saying days it took me a few weeks to find the answer to this um masking is important during training right obviously you don't want it to look ahead so it can learn better question is masking needed during inference what's the point of masking during inference can't we just turn it off 
and save on computation, why, why do we use masking during inference? Why do we keep it on? Oh, man. I don't know. <laughs> this one is like, I was breaking my head about it. I was like searching, couldn't find an answer to it. I was asking ChatGPT because like, give me an answer. Like, why do you use masking? It's like, I'm like, you don't need masking during training. Like you, because you're throwing away, you know, you're throwing away. Like you say you have uh, six, uh, six word input. It gets to the end. We're talking about GPT only models. Uh, sorry, transform uh, decoder only models. It gets to the end, right? You have those six, uh, 200,000 probability distributions. And you throw away the first five. You only use the last one to predict next word. And the last word has access to all the words by default, right? It Masking doesn't affect the last word anyway. So what's the point of masking during inference if you're throwing away the first five probability distributions of the other words? And um, so I was like breaking my head about it. I was like thinking, why do we need masking? There's no point in this. And ChatGPT was so stubborn. I was like, no, you do need masking. It's trying to explain to me, but it wasn't doing a good enough job, but I couldn't understand. And then somewhere on some forum and some hidden uh, like discussion, it finally, like I was reading something, finally hit me. Like the reason that you need masking during inference is because of layers. That's the only reason you need masking. So GPT, like the original transformer has six layers, like GP, uh, the chat GPT, I think version three had 96. Remember we're talking about 96 layers in the previous podcast. So because you have this decoder only architecture, but then you don't use the output that it generates. You put another decoder on and then another 96 times like that, right? So by the time the words get to the end of the decoder only level, right? If, if uh, so you have these context rich vector representation, you don't have that um, linear transformation and output. You don't create the, um, so you basically have layer one, two, three, four. You have that feed forward neural network. Then you don't do the linear transformation and softmax. You just put straight up on top of it. You put the next decoder only architecture where you don't uh, have level one because you already have vector representations. Um, I'm not sure. I don't really remember. I think you do still need the uh, positional encoding um, the where they when they go in there. That's like a small detail. But anyway, so you have these uh, six vector, context-rich vectors for the six words, let's say, that you have. They go they, at the end of level layer one. Then they go into layer two. And as they go through layer two, they are used in the creation of the context for the sixth word, right? So if you turn off masking, all of a sudden these six words, these six vector representations you had at the end of the first layer are going to be different in training and in inference, right? You'll still get a result, but in training and inference, the different there'll be a difference. And that and the fact that they're used for the context of the sixth word in layer two is going to affect the sixth word in layer two and so in layer three and so in layer four and then it'll get to layer 96 so masking is can be switched off only in the last layer but in the previous layers it's important to keep it so that your training architecture is identical to your um inference architecture so it's like a very deep technical question but i think like if i was hiring somebody for an llm position i would ask that question i would say do you need masking during uh inference and they'll say, um, no, you don't. And then I'll ask them why. And then we'll talk about layers and I'll see how well they understand this. Yeah, so the end, the end to that, so you just said that the, the interview, your artificial interviewee, they say no, but the answer is the yes. The answer is yes. You do. There is masking, but it's because, it's, it's because you need it in everything except the top layer. Yes. So in, in those 96 layers, the 96th layer doesn't need it, but the first 95 do. Yes, that's right. That's right. Because those... Vectors, even though they're not used, the first five vectors, they're not used 
uh, for producing the output in the final layer, but they are used in the previous layers for the context it, uh, self in, in all the self-attentions. Nice. All right. What's your next technical question? Okay. 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 Uh, this is an interesting and important one for um, the full transformer. It's called the the SOS token or the start of sequence token. If you look at the transformer architecture, the full transformer architecture research paper at the bottom of the decoder, it says outputs shifted right. And that might be a little bit confusing at first. Like what, what's that for? Well, the reason is that um, how do you generate the first word, right? So you have, you have those six words, the cat sat on the mat going through the encoder, but then the decoder needs to somehow generate that first word. Uh, and then it can build on top of that. How does it just generate the first word? And so um, obviously during inference, there is no first word. There is no output that you need to shift right at the start. But during training, you can't show it the first word, right? You need to um, put some placeholder in, in that place. So it, it knows, it also learns how to generate the first word. And that output shifted right means uh, basically that in the decoder side, we preempt all of, all any text that goes into the decoder always starts with an SOS token, which stands for start of sequence. And uh, basically, this token is treated like any other token. It goes through the uh, input uh, embedding, um, positional encoding. It goes through the self-attention, even though it's it's kind of pointless, but it still follows the same architecture. And then it gets to the cross-attention. Then it gets to cross-attend the English sentence, as we discussed. And then it will be able to generate the first word. So just something to keep in mind that outputs shifted right is a SOS token that is used in the uh, decoder. Um, that's one a technical addition. Um, we talked, okay, so masking, we talked about masking. Um, I guess the other important point uh, with something we talked about was layers, right? So uh, when we know it's a decoder only layer, the layers are stacked on top of each other. But how do layers work in a full transformer architecture? Well, layers are taken um, in the trans in the encoder. The layers are stacked on top of each other. So in the original transformer paper, uh, attention is all you need paper. There's six layers of encoders. They're stacked on top of each other, and they the outputs go into uh, into the next layer, into the next layer, into the next layer, and so on. But then uh, in the decoder side, there's also six layers, and the si all of the six layers in their cross attention they use the output of the final layer of the encoder. So it's not like like-for-like, like, where the first layer is connected with the first layer. The encoder first layer is connected to the decoder first layer. It's not like that. The encoder does all six layers first, and then the output of the sixth layer is fed into level 3B in each layer of the decoder. So that's another technical thing to know that archi how architecturally it looks like. And I think that's uh, pretty much it. Um, oh, there's just one last thing I wanted to say. And that is about uh, bottleneck. So in the previous, remember, John, we were talking about in the previous podcast that LSTMs, they create a bottleneck and they were inefficient because of that, because of the sequential processing, but also they put all their input into a bottleneck and like basically put into one vector and that vector is a bottleneck because you're trying to squeeze a lot of information in, into one vector. So yeah, that's pretty much it. Those are the main technical things that I wanted to um, discuss on this podcast. and. Make sure that everybody's um, at least aware of them because, you know, it's important. I think it's important to, for the general understanding. Nice. Well, Kirill, it has been an awesome journey. Thank you for coming back. As we, you know, at the beginning of the episode, we said there might be too much, like 
to cover that we, of all that we wanted to cover. So there was also the hope uh, of talking about fine tuning uh, these architectures, uh, fine tuning transformer architectures. We'll leave that to another time. So either Kirill and I will make a decision on whether we should come back and have a whole other long Tuesday episode about that, or maybe some uh, one five minute Friday. Well, it'll be more than that. <laughs> one shorter Friday episode um, that isn't quite as long as a Tuesday episode. We will get that content to you. There are also there's there's been lots of advances, and I get the impression that Kirill probably knows a lot more about these things than I do these days, but we have done some episodes on fine-tuning in the past. So for example, episode number 674 in particular is about parameter-efficient fine-tuning with LoRa, um, low-rank adaptation, which is one of the most popular approaches or certainly the root of many of the uh, uh, popular approaches today. But yeah, there's lots of cool things to talk about. Uh, QLoRa and RLHF and fine-tuning versus the regular training. And so there's all these kinds of things. I mean, it sounds to me like it's probably a whole other Tuesday episode, Carol, but <laughs> we can figure that out. One day. Um, in the meantime, you now, in addition to episode number 747, where Carol gave us that amazing technical introduction to decoder only transformers. Now we've fleshed out, we've filled out our knowledge with a, complete coverage of how an encoder decoder transformer works. And I think it's pretty amazing. You know, this does seem like a relatively long podcast episode, but if you think about that, this is the, over the course of roughly two, two hour podcast episodes, 747. And then now this one today, we've managed to distill almost six months of your knowledge. It's pretty amazing. And on top of that, if you're interested in getting this information from something more than just an audio-only podcast format like this, Kirill, I suspect you have a uh, good resource. Yeah, of course, of course. Uh, please uh, come check out uh, superdesigns.com/llmcourse, where Adlan and I have published our uh, large language models A to Z course, and it's not available anywhere else. It's only available in the Superdesigns platform. Uh, so you'd need to sign up for a membership, and then you can get access to that course and all of our other courses plus. All of the live labs that we do, we're doing two labs. Our goal is to do two labs per month at this stage, plus additional live sessions, isn't like online live sessions. Um, yeah, superdayascience.com slash LLM course. Come check it out. Uh, learn learn tons about large language models. I think you're touching on something really cool there as well that that is worth highlighting, which is that the superdatascience.com platform is now becoming a really vibrant space for people to be getting live interactive instruction and being able to chat together and get help on technical questions as well as career questions with each other, as well as with uh, luminaries like yourself and Adla and, and others as well. And so, uh, yeah, really cool that superdatascience.com is now becoming that, uh, you know, an ecosystem all into itself. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's our goal. And we're, we're gradually building that up. So, yeah, would love to see our listeners there. Nice. All right, so let's wrap up. As you know, Kirill, as you put in the instructions to me when I took over as host a little over three years ago, you very well know that I must ask you for a book recommendation before I let you go. Awesome. Um, book recommendation. So last time I talked about The Big Leap, a uh, fantastic book. Um, this time I'd like to recommend another great book I read uh, a few months ago uh, called The Go-Giver. Uh, by Bob Berg and John David 
man, I believe. Um, really nice book about how to accomplish success in life, however you define success, by rather than aiming to grab things and take things and win things and always like striving for achievement, uh, doing the opposite by giving uh, people uh, as much as you can in all areas of life. And they talk about five areas or five ways of giving, uh, five concepts that underpin this notion. And it's really well written in the sense that it's it's not just like a self-help book where uh, it talks about like the tactics and strategies. It's actually a story. It's a story of this guy who's uh, having trouble at his work and his relationship and so on. And then he meets his mentor and the mentor talks him through these five days of giving and it shows how it transforms his life. It's a very heartfelt book. I enjoyed it a lot. Excellent recommendation. Very much up your alley. Uh, you are a big giver Thanks, and John. we are all super grateful for all of the content and resources and uh, laughter and everything that you've brought to our lives. We really appreciate it. Thanks. Uh, That's so nice. Thank you. Um, in addition to the superdatascience.com platform, where should people be following you before the next time you appear on the show? Uh, LinkedIn, a great place, but I think the, the best, the, the place I hang out most is Super Data Science platform right now. Nice. All right. Thanks so much, Kirill. I'm sure it won't be long before you're on again. <laughs> Uh, and I'm sure our audience loves the experience as much as I do. Thank you. Thank you, John. Thanks. It was great. All right. I hope you found today's episode to be extremely informative. I certainly did. In today's episode, Kiro filled us in on the encoder structure of the transformer and how it combined with the decoder structure through cross-attention, how encoder-only architectures like BERT excel at natural language understanding, while decoder-only architectures excel at natural language generation, and full encoder-decoder architectures give you the best of both. That's highly contextualized natural language generation. He also talked about how we need masking during self-attention because it prevents the model from cheating, from looking ahead to what comes next in the training data during generation tasks, while encoder-only models and cross-attention don't need masking, and so you can take advantage of the full context, that's the language before and after a given token with those kinds of models. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, the URLs for Kirill's social media profiles, as well as my own, at superdatascience.com slash 759. And for a full video instruction version of the content we covered today and more, you can check out Kirill's LLM course exclusively at superdatascience.com slash LLM course. We've got that link for you in the show notes as well. Thanks to my colleagues at Nebula for supporting me while I create content like this Super Data Science episode for you. And thanks, of course, to Ivana, Mario, Natalie, Serge, Silvio, Zara, and Kirill on the Super Data Science team for producing another insane episode for us today. For enabling that super team to create this free podcast for you, we are deeply grateful to our sponsors. You can support this show by checking out our sponsors' links, which you can find in the show notes. And if you yourself are interested in sponsoring an episode, don't hesitate to check out how by heading to johncrone.com slash podcast. Otherwise, please feel free to share, review, subscribe if you haven't already and all that good stuff. But most importantly, just keep listening. So grateful to have you listening. And I hope I can continue to make episodes you love for years and years to come. Until next time, keep on rocking it out there. And I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science Podcast with you very soon.